we should be advocating for halal menus any place where Muslims are. Do we want their children to go hungry or to have to face a dilemma between their religious faith and eating? Is that what we want because we have a, an agenda religiously and politically? Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are exploring the meaning of the gospel. Yeah. Last week, Kent wasn't here, and this week, Alex isn't here. And we're in the middle of a series, The Faith That Works. Yeah, yeah. We're coming near the end. Are we? Today's episode is called Faith Like Yeast. And we're trying to answer this question. How does the gospel argue for its own place in society? How does it benefit even people who don't believe it? And why must it? Uh, now, Nathan, you wrote this outline, and I, I must confess, I don't exactly know what you mean. Okay, When good. you say, how does the gospel argue for its own place in society? Let's start there. Okay. So, um, Sting wrote a song a while back called uh, The River or something, and maybe I'm just being self-conscious, but as a non-Christian, I, I think what he was meaning to suggest was in his... I don't remember the exact lyrics, but it was basically like, if I could pick one boat out of the river, I would. And, and it seems to me that the boat that he would want to take out would, would have been the Christian system. Um, and, and so somebody can argue, let's say the classical, um, mentality of, of the Greco-Roman world was, um, a great advancement in human society that there was uh, explosion of, of learning and all of that. And, right. and that one could say, well, that was, we were all going full steam and then Christianity came and then it became really regressive and the dark ages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we were, we were stuck in fear and ignorance for centuries until mm-hmm. there was a, a revival of, of really classical thought. Right. Reason and enlightenment, the Renaissance. Right. Yeah. And so what would human society be like if we could go back and do away with this thing that was a wrench in the works? Right. Um, and that, you know, we could advance. That's a certain unbeliever's point of view, a skeptic's point of view. There's other arguments out there that actually right. Christianity gave rise to the Renaissance and later to sure. uh, even to the Enlightenment. Right. There's principles uh, underlying that. So there's two different historical arguments. Yeah. Maybe one is more revisionist history than the other. Right. Yeah. That's not really what we're here to sure. discuss necessarily, right. is it? No, no. And so let me give you an example of what, what was the accepted mentality, what everybody just knew to be true um, in first century Rome. So if we say, well, Christianity came and derailed this, this train that was heading toward progress, um, but what everybody knew to be true in first century Rome was that slaves are a, a different order of human, that slaves had a, um, a lesser value inherently by, by virtue of their station. And this was, um, this wasn't just some sort of a political position. This was a philosophical, um, position and it came down from Aristotle, mm-hmm. Aristotle somehow talked himself into this whole argument that uh, a thing is worth what it can do. So if we were to say, you know, what makes a good knife? A good knife is something that cuts well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if we were to 
say, take that out and in talk about um, when he, he said, well, what makes a good free person? Um, it's the ability to reason, to reason well. And so he would say that that good and that value and virtue for a free person is the ability to reason well. But slaves are not capable of reason, nor are they expected to reason. So what makes a good slave is to work hard or something like that. So uh, that there was an essential difference between someone who was a slave, that they weren't just somebody who was in a bad circumstance, who was, as we would say, had equal value. In our society, we would say, well, the janitor and the CEO, they they may make different incomes, but as a human being, we wouldn't, uh, let's say there's both of them are, are experiencing kidney failure and there's a kidney mm-hmm. that's been donated and both of them are a match. Right. And we would say, well, give it, obviously give it to the CEO. Right. In our society, that would be, that would be ghastly. We wouldn't, uh-huh. why is that ghastly to us in our right. society? We, we've, we've come to believe that all people are created equal. Right. And there's that are created part, you know, mm-hmm. um, but why do we think that, um, and I, and I, the irony is, is that we, we say, well, we can do away with Christianity and just go you know, uh, operate on values. Um, but those are baseless and they are not uh, to be assumed. And, and that's, what's I think dishonest about a, an atheistic worldview is to think that, that these Western values somehow can exist on their own indefinitely or that they are self-evident mm-hmm. to get back to the framers of the constitution. And they're not self-evident. They haven't been self-evident to people throughout the ages. And they weren't to somebody who was as smart as Aristotle and to people who followed him that it's not obvious to everybody. So that's some of what I would say that why the gospel is, is important to society, at least if if we enjoy living in a society where people have equal worth, if you look at, um, say Nazi Germany, there's nothing about the values of Nazi Germany that are inherently wrong. If you preclude the notion of the gospel, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, from a purely Darwinian, if we said, well, evolution is true and, and Darwinian mechanics are, are true and that uh, and, and on top of that, we layer what's best for the human race is best overall. So we say Darwinism is based on the survival of the fittest mm-hmm. and that the fittest appear to be this group of people. And so evolution moves forward, not only as a new uh, race or whatever emerges, but as the previous race dies off. Mm-hmm. So we're just, the ends justify the means, right? We need to, we need to move the race forward and that includes and requires uh, ethnic cleansing, ethnic cleansing. Right. If I were to say, does, does, uh, Darwinism argue more for, um, caring for the disabled uh, or does it argue more for ethnic cleansing? Clearly it argues more for ethnic, ethnic cleansing. Right. But, but people would. They would, uh, you know, fight you to the nail about that, even though to me, it seems obvious self-evident. Mm-hmm. So there's a dishonesty there. Right. Because, because the very society, which promotes science-based 
um, sort of thinking, uh, and therefore in, endorses all, all things evolutionary, yeah. would also say we we strongly ad- adhere to caring for the poor and the the rights of the, you know the innocent, right, and protecting the the weak and the vulnerable, right. And where do they get that? Exactly. On what basis can you say you you believe and practice these things? Sure. Yeah. And your and, and your point is that the gospel actually is what provides that to our society. Yeah. It's the it's the basis of it. And without a basis, you can keep something going, I think, for a while without a basis. So let's just say um you've got a nice tree out in your yard and and um some people come in to do some utility work and they hack up the roots with their backhoe. Mm-hmm. Is that tree just gonna fall straight over and die? No. <laughs> right. But its days are numbered. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that that's the case. And if you were to, you know, if you were to stand there and, and you complain to the guy with the backhoe and he says, look, the tree is fine. It doesn't need the roots. Quit crying. Right. And, right. and, and you're like, what? You just destroyed this tree. And he's like, it looks the same to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's about where I see this, this kind of atheistic worldview that, that claims that values can continue at least the same values mm-hmm. can endure mm-hmm. and and then you're going to have uh and already have it in europe so there's this onslaught from islam mm-hmm. now these are people with a very strong basis for their value system and uh and it just so happens that their value system is antithetical to that of the western world and what you find is is that these very liberal kind of egalitarian societies are becoming pretty bigoted, regressive, hostile. You have things like burqa bans, um, that there's a a swing toward hard nationalism Mm -hmm. that borders on, in those societies, nationalism and racism are very similar. Sure, yeah. Um, And so you you start to see that once... Because they have a more coherent, cohesive racial identity as as a nation. Right, to be Um, French is to be what? Yeah, yeah, to be white. Right. It, it is. And uh, I mean, you can find certainly probably people of African background who speak French, who've always lived in France. But if you were to say, you know, if you were to picture a Frenchman, he's not a black guy, he's right. not Asian or anything else. And so um, we want where the, these societies are becoming fractured. They're becoming of two minds that there's a lot of divisiveness now because you have people who are wanting to keep these liberal values alive, um, that they're ideologues, I would say in some cases. And then you have people who perhaps are of a more practical mindset who believe that, well, as this population continues to grow and make demands and undermine our society the way it's been, that the Muslim it's population. being threatened. Yeah. yeah. And so um, they're saying, well, we're being pragmatic. We can't allow... Um, this group to impose Sharia law or to, um, say, undermine the standards in a particular neighborhood or, or whatever. And so uh, now we're stuck. Uh, and we see that those values do not hold up when put under pressure. They are neither resilient enough to stop the encroachment of another worldview, nor are they durable enough to be maintained in the face of defeat, <laughs> really, you know, for somebody to stand there and, and to be a martyr for those things and to say, well, I'm going to continue to believe this way, uh, even though it means the demise 
of my society. Um, that is ultimately not going to be the case. So it will crumble from within and from without, and it already is. Um, so what worldview is there? Let's just say that Islam continues to make inroads and it's projected to, um, Muslims uh, on average have eight children per family, whereas, uh, Western atheists have one, 1.3, So in a few decades, Muslims will be the dominant uh, people on the earth. What's there to stand in, in the gap, in the breach? I mean, is, is do we want Sharia law? Do we want this sort of a society that you see in the Taliban and other things? And there are probably Muslims who would, who disagree with the Taliban, but there's not within Islam, as far as I can see, the resources to denounce, um, a lot of the extremist views that those, that those concepts have to come from outside of Islam and critique it from outside. Um, and that being the case, I, I, I don't hold out a lot of hope for an enlightened liberal version of Islam mm -hmm. once Islam is a dominant force in a country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that the classical Western liberalism is really not going to be sufficient to uh, withstand the tide. Right. Yeah. And we can see that it's not already. It's they're scrambling, they're struggling, you know, these uh, elections in France and in Germany and, and very hardcore nationalistic candidates making major inroads, um, that, that that's okay. concerning if you want to advocate for these Western liberal values. Mm -hmm. And even here in America, there's a lot of talk about the authoritarian left and the authoritarian right. There's a rise of authoritarianism, mm -hmm. both on the left and the right. And people are talking about how American democracy is threatened by that. Um, yeah. our classical Western liberal ideals are threatened by that. Um, so where does the gospel come in and what is the argument being made here that the gospel has to contribute to this, uh, to this, what solution does the gospel offer? Yeah, well, it offers that, it offers that solution, both the internal and external solution that's missing, I think, from Western, uh, liberal societies. And that is that the gospel offers the, the kind of foundation and fortitude so that, um, and throughout history has been the case that we continue to love others, though they hate us, though they kill us, that we don't allow the onslaught from outside to change who we are on the inside, that there's enough of a basis here that it, you know, the stakes are not entirely, um, who's going to win or lose, but they, but the winner winning and losing are based on how we react. Uh, throughout scripture, throughout the New Testament, you see that um, to overcome the world is not to get your worldview, mm -hmm. to make that the dominant worldview, but to not allow the external worldview to change you, mm -hmm. to, to be, to conquer you from within. And so I, I think that with the gospel in hand and as people have the gospel, that they have the fortitude to stand against the tide personally, to not become reactionary. Mm -hmm. and, and as communities of faith. Yes. Well, and individuals even. I mean, even one individual, like mm -hmm. the guy at TNMN Square, and I don't know what mm -hmm. his background is, but he had a fortitude, he had a conviction. So to stand against the tide. And I think it just an individual with that kind of conviction 
can have a powerful influence over society. Um, and, and I think that the gospel gives that kind of conviction uh, that other things don't, mm -hmm. that, that an atheistic worldview and Western liberal values just don't give that kind of conviction to people. And so it has that internal um, influence. And then it has the external influence in that it is, it is um, oriented toward loving other people, toward um, being a contributor. And, and so as the gospel begins to take hold in a society, should it uh, be on that individual who's standing against the tide, but let's say more and more people start to see, hey, this guy has something I don't have mm -hmm. under the pressure, say, from without. And um, what we will find is, is that those people begin to, like you mentioned, live in a community. They take care of one another. They work hard. I mean, you think about the old Christian communities, the Quakers, the Shakers, those people in the U.S., Puritans, much of the United States' success commercially is, you know, owes to these Christian societies that value thrift and hard work for the sake of the gospel. And so you have these communities that are reaching out in love, that are functioning in, in a very practical way. I think that that is the hope of whatever society. Now, there may be ebb and flow in the influence of the gospel, you know, as we become affluent and we begin to relinquish our birthright, I think Christians, we become just as susceptible as anybody else. But once it goes down, you start to see kind of this Phoenix rising. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's just really no way to account for the house church movement in China mm -hmm. from a purely human standpoint. I mean, from, from a human standpoint, if you were a um, skeptic, you would not see that coming because not only are people incentivized to accept the atheist narrative of the communist government, but they're punished for not accepting it, uh, that there's really not a, you know, what, what attracts people to Christianity in communist China. I think they realize that there's just no, there's no soul mm -hmm. that everyone has abdicated their, their depth to somebody else. And I think they see the need for it. So yeah, that's. Where would you say that you see the Phoenix rising in the United States? Do you see it yet? I mean, are we really just watching the demise at this point? of the church of Christian America, Christendom, um, and we're hoping someday to see the Phoenix rising, or can you point to an example? I can't point to a whole lot of examples. I, you know, I, the problem is, is that the church I think is, has imbibed the culture so much that it's almost indistinguishable here. Um, so I, and I don't want to be overly critical, but the, the mega church model is kind of the full growth of the, of consumerism in America. Um, it presumes a lot of, of self-interest and demand on the part of the would-be disciples. And so there's not a whole lot of transformation that's built into the system. Uh, and since most Christians are, or at least high percentage of Christians are a part of, of churches that are built around their preferences. It's very hard to imagine that those people are going to 
most of them are going to, you know, be, have the fortitude that would be required. Um, it seems that when things get hard, we just look for a different church or even simple things like relational drama or whatever will, will send us packing. So, uh, I, I think it probably takes the external pressure, the persecution, the suffering for that to happen. There are probably some isolated movements. I think right now it's going to happen on an individual basis. Like it's going to have to be people who do their job for the Lord, mm. you know, that they, they're not there to, for the promotion. They're not there for the you know, advancement, whatever, but that they are there to, um, to serve him and to offer that to, through, to him. And, and because by doing that, I think that uh, number one, the, the society benefits from people who are working their best, whether they're being watched, whether they're going to be rewarded initially or immediately uh, society benefits mm -hmm. from that. And, and, but also that person is just a standing testimony against the way of the world that they, they are indicting the way of the world just by how they function. By functioning from a different motivational set. Right. Yeah. And, and that's got to, in, in a world where everybody assumes that everybody else is just as self-interested and, and ambitious as they are, that, that to see that person becomes, uh, you know, a challenge to the paradigm that, that other people have. So at least at this point in American society, I think it's going to be just those individuals who are, as Jesus said, being the salt of the earth. Um, I, you know, in truth, I hope that we just don't go, that history doesn't continue that much longer. <laughs> you know, I definitely have a, a come Lord Jesus, uh, you know, I, I would be okay if it didn't revive and it all just, you know, um, we were just left with some, some very faithful martyrs and then Jesus comes back, but, uh, whatever, uh, whatever comes of it. But on the one hand, we're saying that, um, the gospels actually influenced, uh, our society over time through history in such a way that we have a lot of shared values now that actually, if you trace their roots, their roots are in the gospel. But on the other hand, we're saying that our society that has gr uh, drifted so far from faith in Christ, um, we, we, one, we don't recognize that our shared values, actually so many of them find their roots in the gospel. And right. on the other hand, the, the church has become so weak and compromised, um, that what we need is, um, a, 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 re a resurgence, a reemergence of true faith. Yeah. It's an irony to me, to me that we're saying on the one hand, our society is deeply influenced by the gospel. And on mm -hmm. the other hand, and we don't know it and appreciate it like we should. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, we're, uh, I asked you for some examples of yeah. faithful Christian witness, and it was kind of hard to come up with it. Yeah, it is in America, especially. Um, but I, I think that maybe we reach back into the new Testament and we, and we try to find examples there and, and that's always helpful. Um, and, and I've been talking around, I think this passage for the past two weeks, but I, I'm just going to wade into it. And so in Romans 12, two, okay. So Romans 12, one, and in view of God's mercies, right? Uh, offer your bodies, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. Okay. Um, and, or pleasing sacrifice. So Romans 12, one, we're told to offer our bodies as a pleasing sacrifice. And then Romans 12, two, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may 
the Greek here is test through prove, uh, prove through testing. Okay. So that you may prove through testing, what is the will of God, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Now, when I've read that in the past, I've always thought, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know his will, but if I'm submitted enough, if I'm transformed enough, I will. I thought that was what that meant. That is not what that means. Why do I say that? Because it, Paul is giving us this uh, bi-directional call of the gospel in those two verses. Chapter one is this vertical call. Offer your body's living sacrifice, which is pleasing to the Lord. And then in three through eight, he will, he will tell us what that looks like. And it, it looks like serving our brothers and sisters, mm. uh, using our gifts for the benefit of the body. It's not some sort of a mental game that we do and we go off in secret and we, you know, we try to, hey, Lord, I'm offering now my body to you. Take me up and use me. No, he's saying, look, your brother over there, he needs you to mow his yard. That's how your body, <laughs> you know, how you put your body on the altar mm -hmm. as a living sacrifice. It's no good to anybody if you just are sitting there offering yourself to God, just you and him. Mm -hmm. um, so. And he's saying, look, that God is, he smells that, you know, he, he's pleased with it. But then he's speaking to them as a community and he's saying, now I want you also to, to take a different approach to life. One that is so radically different that it has to be proven that there is a proposition to life that, that when heard, it sounds wrong. It sounds, um, like it's going to fail. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, I want you to take that proposition and I want you to prove that it's true to the world. I want you to show the world. So when he says it's good and pleasing and perfect, he's not saying that God is pleased with his own will, but he's saying, show this world that the will of God is good and pleasing and perfect. That, mm -hmm. that somewhere in their heart of hearts, they'll recognize it once it is lived that when they hear it, they are, they recoil, mm -hmm. but when it's lived, they can recognize it, which is why you get over to chapter 13. And Paul says that, you know, if you, if you live and you do good in this world, that the powers that be will give you praise, mm -hmm. they will see that the will of God is good and pleasing and perfect. Now in the interim, so these kinds of, of things that we do, this transformed mind, this, this nonconformity. And, and so we read that and we, and we think, well, I'm going to be, um, belligerent and oppositional. What's the very, that's the very opposite of what he's saying. Right. Because that's so what anybody wars. can do. So the culture wars, the call to fight in the culture war is not what Paul is calling us to. Exactly. Because what does, what do people of the world do? If, if I come to fight you, what do you do? Fight back. Exactly. It does not matter. And so we can say, well, I'm on the Christian side because I'm fighting for the pro-life cause or I'm fighting for the anti-gay cause. And so I'm going to fight. And he's saying, no, the fact that you're trying to fight means that you're still using worldly methods. You still have a worldly mindset. Yeah. You fought over a different issue, but you're still reacting, retaliating. You, you've, you've drawn these battle lines against other human beings who are the ones, that, the very ones that Jesus died for. That's the mind shift, not going from pro-choice to pro-life or going from pro-gay to anti-gay or whatever the, the cultural issue. And that's why 
the religious people are so easily manipulated by political parties is because they're still very much worldly minded people. What happens when people have that transformation is, is that political parties can't reach them because their mindset is so very different. There's no way to project it. There's no way to anticipate it. You can't count on how they're going to behave. Now that person's really scary. That person's really subversive. And, and so it, Paul gives us these examples of what this renewed mind is. And he says, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hurt you. That's the mind shift, not changing party affiliations. Um, and, and yet it's those people who go out into the world to do good to those who hurt them. And, and, and I love that he says, and, and, and this is something I think that indicts American Christianity maybe more than anything else. When he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Man, in my history, I've always heard that as um, with, with other Christians. I don't think he's saying that. In, in the context, he seems to be talking about how we treat those who, who are our enemies, who are hostile toward us. And I, I just think about, you know, when, um, let's say back when ISIS was a thing and, uh, you know, this, all this Muslim terrorism and stuff was going on. And, um, we were sure that these people were our enemies and, uh, getting back to Islam, I guess. And then there's this shooting in, uh, New Zealand, the Christchurch mosque in New Zealand mm -hmm. and, uh, 54 people killed, I think at that time. And. I didn't hear a peep from the church lamenting, grieving for that. That I think that almost we, we secretly were feeling like you get a taste of your own medicine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there was a guy, I can't even remember his name now, but in the UK, he was, a you know, father McKenzie type little, uh, rector of a little church or something. And uh, he saw the news about that and he made up a sign that said, I am your friend. I will watch while you pray. And he stood outside of the mosque uh -huh. there in England and said, I've got your back. Uh -huh. Yeah, That guy, he gets it. There's, there's <laughs> a modern day example. That's someone who grieves with those who grieve, uh -huh. who knows how to grieve with those who grieve. That's obedience to the gospel, not trying to pass laws and stirring up fear over halal menus in Flint, Michigan. You know what? We should be advocating for halal menus any place where Muslims are. Do we want their children to go hungry or to have to face a dilemma between their religious faith and eating? Is that what we want? Because we have a, an agenda religiously and politically, hmm. man, it's just, it grieves my heart. It grieves me to the core that we, we have defrauded ourselves. Our birthright is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, to be people who our choices, they come so far out of left field that people can't help but to ask the questions. Uh -huh. And for us to just participate in this pissing match, <laughs> you know, forgive my French, but I just, I just am confused by it. I don't understand, and um, something has happened that we've missed it. But uh, but the gospel, man, if we had more guys like that, 
Um, and, and that's an affluent post-Christian society. It's not that it can't exist here, but I'm afraid we get swept into an oppositional mm-hmm. mindset, which the very notion of being oppositional is the way of the world. And so we have Christians all over who feel like they are bastions of the truth and advocates for the way of God, and they are being just as worldly as anybody else. They're just on a different side. They have a different opinion that they're ready to fight about. Mm -hmm. Using worldly means. Right. And uh, jockeying for worldly power and position. Yep. Whereas the gospel calls us to relinquish worldly means, relinquish worldly power and position, mm-hmm. release the outcomes to God, and instead focus on being faithful to love yeah. our neighbor, serve Christ, mm-hmm. serve our neighbor, serve one another. Yeah, and that, that produces a society that is functional, it's honest. I mean, if, if people are living according to a good conscience— and I can count on that in you, and you can count on that in me. Commerce can thrive and grow, but if you can't count on that, and they can't, uh, we again, we, we assume that that's true, but it's only because we are the beneficiaries of this worldview and other people generations gone by. China is never going to be the world power it wants to be because corruption will always appear every time there's opportunity. They don't have the basis of it. You know, that economist, I think his name was Zhao Zhu, and he came here, the Chinese Communist Party sent him here to figure out what's the basis of our economy because they know that theirs is parasitic, Mm -hmm. that if we're not here, then they can't be. And so they count on the fact that we have, uh, that we're robust enough for them to live off of our scraps. And, but but they don't want to do that. They want to be independent of us. So they they he, they sent him over here to ask how how are they doing it and why can't we? Because they every time anybody's a CEO of a bank, you can count on him skimming money. I mean they they've had they've done all this crackdown on corruption and I mean ferreting out tens of thousands of government officials. That's the kind of corruption that's over there because you can't assume that conscientiousness in the other person. So they, they come here, and this guy, Zhao Zhu, he, he travels around, and what he discovers is that where in China there are bathhouses on every corner, in the United States there are churches on every corner. And so he, he wanders into one of them, and he, and he says, what I found there wasn't what I expected. He says, I found people who'd been married for 50 years who were still like they were on their honeymoon. Folks, it's, a, it's that stuff we take for granted. It's the fact that that two people can be happily married for decades is an astonishing thing everywhere but where the gospel is. Mm. You know, that we could just take for granted that in our churches there's that cute little old couple who's always been doddering into church together. Man, that is the testimony to the power of Jesus Christ, and we miss it. We take it for granted, but this guy was like, what is this? Mm -hmm. And, And he picked up a Bible, and he says, we don't have a book like this in China. He says, we have books of wisdom and philosophy. We even have, you know, things about religion, but, but nothing about a story about God interacting with people. And this guy became a Christian. He's a believer in Christ. And he's just like the, you know, he told the communist party, you're not going to have a strong economy until you have the gospel. Hmm. And he's right. Um, and, and 
it's stuff that we take for granted. And as people reject the faith, they do not know that they are shooting themselves and their society and future generations in the foot. Mm. And unfortunately that they must, and they will discover that if it continues. Right. Well, I think we've um, completed our objective. We said we, we, were gonna, we were going to explain how the gospel argues for itself uh, it uh, in society and how it benefits society. And those were some good examples. Thank you. Yeah. Well, before we close, I just want to challenge anybody. If you can come up with a worldview that can do what the gospel does. Send us a message. Just, yeah. Reach out. Let's just, look at it. Yeah. Let, argue for your particular um, thesis and, and say, based on this worldview, based on that this has uh, enough of a, of a foundation to endure and to cross cultural divides and to weather the storms of change, and that it has within it enough of um, just the value, the, the nourishment for individual rights, for individual flourishing and cultural success, you have to demonstrate all of that. It has to do it all together. Um, and if you can come up with something like that, I'll be just really impressed. So thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.